Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Well, we want to turn our attention to God's Word here this morning, and Last Sunday, we started a short series in the book of Haggai. Now, the hardest thing about Haggai is finding it in your Bible, right? It's at the end of the Old Testament. So if you're in like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just go left a couple of books. If you've got an index, you can use your index if you need to do that to get there. Haggai is probably in the portion of your Bible where the pages are still stuck together because you haven't probably turned there anytime really recently. So find Haggai. And if, you're, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath a chair rack nearby in front of you. And uh, you can take that copy, page 743, will get you right to where we're going. So you don't have to look like everybody else around you who doesn't know where they're going. You can, you can look like you know exactly where you're going. Page 743 will get you right to Haggai. Now, the title of the series, what we're calling this, is Kingdom First. Kingdom First. 38 verses is this entire book, and we covered about half of them or so, uh, maybe a third of them last Sunday, because we looked at the entire first chapter in our first installment in this series. And so before we read from chapter 2 this morning, I want to kind of do a quick recap from last week. Haggai is a prophet, and as you read through the Old Testament, you will find prophets, and prophets are intended by God to call the people back to the covenant, to call people back to the relationship specifically for, for our Old Testament or our Old Covenant context. It is the covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. So Haggai is no different. And he has come on the scene to call the people back. But there's a backstory. There's, there is a lot that takes place before we get to this book. Because the people of God had been living away from the covenant. They had been living in rebellion to the covenant. And so the prophets before Haggai... We're calling them back and calling them back and calling them back and warning them that if they did not come back, the divine judgment of God would come to them through the surrounding nations. And sure enough, the nation of Babylon, some 70 years before the book of Haggai, comes in and destroys the city of Jerusalem, lays the temple in ruin, the temple that Solomon had built many years before, leaves it as a pile of rubble and hauls off all of the Jewish people 900 miles away into exile. Well, another nation comes along, the Persians, and they defeat the Babylonians. And they assume responsibility for the Jewish people. And these Persians are a lot more um, lenient. They're a lot more uh, willing to allow other religious groups. And so they allow the Jewish people to continue to worship their God. As a matter of fact, they say to them, if any of you want to go back to Jerusalem, you can go. You're free to go back to your homeland. You're free to go back and worship your God. And so a remnant, a small remnant of them, go back to Jerusalem, to the city that lie in ruins, and they began to rebuild that city. Well, it didn't take long that some of the surrounding nations saw what was going on and they began to threaten the Israelites for rebuilding the temple and they actually petitioned the Persian king and they say, don't you see what they're doing? They're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding their temple, they're going to end up coming after us, they're going to end up coming after you. If you don't do something, we're going to step in and do something and wipe them out. Well, the Jewish people hear about this and they become fearful and they just stop. They got the foundation of the temple laid, but then they stop. 
They go back to their business. They go back to their homes. They go back to their lives. And 15 years pass. And then we pick up where we are in the book of Haggai. So last Sunday in chapter 1, we see Haggai coming on the scene. Everybody's building their own homes, but they're not prioritizing God's home, God's temple. And so Haggai, through the message of God, calls to them to go to the hills to bring the wood and to build the house. To prioritize first what God prioritizes most, and that is his temple. Understand this, that the temple of God is the dwelling place of God. It is the overlap between God and man. It is where God meets with man and that relationship was mediated with the people of God. So this is an important place. It's not just a structure of brick and mortar. It represents the very presence of God, his relationship with his people. And so they begin to prioritize rebuilding that temple. And that's where we left off. At the end of chapter 1, we're thinking, man, this is good. Like, there's been this revival. People have gone back to the work of God. They're prioritizing the temple. All is good. All is great. This is going to end really, really well. But just as soon as you start prioritizing that relationship with God, expect opposition. So that's what happens in chapter 2. The title of today's message is Blurry Vision. Blurry Vision. I think you'll see why in a moment. Follow along with me in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 12th, I'm sorry, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, In its former glory, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant That I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. Says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, of this temple, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the big idea. If you're writing some things down and keeping notes, this is what sits over top of these nine verses here that we're going to study for the next few minutes. Kingdom-first Christians have a clear vision of God's kingdom priority. Kingdom-first Christians, that's what we studied last week, prioritizing the temple. Kingdom-first Christians have a clear vision of God's kingdom priority. Now as a kid, I found out that I have a lazy eye. This left eye is considered lazy. The vision in this eye is not as good as the vision in my right eye. And so we went 
to the eye doctor. My mom took me and they began to diagnose this problem and they gave me some exercises that I needed to do. So I got a pair of glasses that I had to wear and on one side there was a patch that would clip on like a plastic patch and on the other side there was there was a prescription lens for this lazy eye in my left eye. And I had to sit there at the dining room table with a pen and a newspaper and with this eye covered and only with my blurry eye, my weak eye, I had to fill in all of the O's and the zeros in that newspaper page to try to strengthen this eye because it was, it was lazy. It wasn't as strong. I had blurry vision in this eye. Now, to this day, I still have a lazy eye. My, my right eye compensates for my left eye, so together I have 20-20 vision, together. But in reality, I have like 20-80 or something where this eye is not as strong as the other eye. So you've probably been to the eye doctor and you've seen, when they were diagnosing my lazy eye, I had to sit in a chair and I had to look at a poster on the wall and I had to go through from the large letters down to the smaller letters and I had to try to read them. Well, it was great when I had both of my eyes and I could use them both, but as soon as I covered this eye, I didn't get very far. I got just like a line or two down. So then they put this machine, the doctor puts this machine in front of my face and he begins to change out the lenses. And as he changed out the lens for this left eye, I was able to read further and further down because my blurry vision became clearer so that I could read the smaller letters on that poster. I'm afraid today that many Christians have undiagnosed blurry spiritual vision. It's undiagnosed because you might not even know that you have it. And yet you are walking around with spiritual vision that is blurry, that is clouded, that is disillusioned, and you don't see clearly the priority of God's kingdom in your life. The symptoms of this are often disappointment, disillusionment, unmet expectations. You start asking yourself questions like, what exactly is God doing here? I don't understand what's going on in my life. I thought my life would be different than it is right now. I thought I would be further along in my relationship with God. I thought things wouldn't, wouldn't be the way that they are. So there are these unmet expectations. Sometimes there is comparison. Oftentimes there's confusion. And you may or may not realize it, but that could be the indication of blurry spiritual vision in your life. And what makes it even more confusing is that you're in church. And to the best of your ability, you're trying to follow after Jesus. You're trying to do the right things. You're trying to prioritize his kingdom. And you may not realize it, but you need a visual adjustment. You may need a prescription adjustment on your eyes so that you can see more clearly the kingdom of God and its work in your life. Only three weeks have passed in our story from last Sunday. Three weeks. That's it. This book is time-stamped all the way throughout, so we can really follow the chronology of what's going on. I can't imagine that they got a whole lot of temple built in three weeks, but in just three short weeks, we already find that there is some comparison, some disillusionment, some misunderstanding about the priority of the temple and the kingdom and what God is doing. So Haggai is here to call them back and to help them to understand that they are not seeing God's kingdom clearly. They have spiritual blurry vision. Kingdom first Christians have a clear vision of God's kingdom priority. So the question is this. What adjustments need to be made in order to have that clear vision? What adjustments? Because if we make the right adjustments, eventually 
we'll be able to see clearly. So there are three adjustments that Haggai the prophet is calling the people of God to right from our text. We want to look at them, we want to study them, we want to apply them this morning. Follow along with me if you would. It's going to look like this. To have clear vision, number one, I must confront unhealthy comparison. To have clear vision, I must confront unhealthy comparison. I want you to see it in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house, this temple, in its former glory? That's speaking of the temple that Solomon built some 65, 70 years before. Who is among you that remembers the temple that Solomon built before it was destroyed? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There were still people among the people of God who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple. They were the elderly eyewitnesses. They they remember the good old days. They remember the one that Solomon built before it was destroyed. And you know what they're doing? They're comparing. They're looking at Solomon's temple and they're looking at this foundation in the pile of rubble and they're saying, this doesn't look anything like that. And so... Haggai's having to confront this in them. And the ironic thing is this happened 15 years before when they first came back from exile. If we were to cross-reference this with with Ezra chapter 3, it says all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. Remember, this is 15 years before. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. And if you were to keep reading in Ezra, they couldn't even distinguish the rejoicing from the weeping. People are rejoicing because we're finally able to rebuild this temple and others are weeping because it doesn't look nearly like what Solomon's temple looked like 70 years before. The temple work was stalled over nostalgic comparison. You see, they missed the entire point of the temple. The temple is not about the adornment. It's not about the edifice. It's not about the structure. It's not about the gold. It's not about the lily work. It's not about the beauty. It's not about the splendor. The temple is about the presence of God. And so they were comparing the outward splendor of the two different temples. They were comparing the physical structure of the two different temples and they missed the reality that the same God who inhabited the temple with Solomon is the same God who is working with his people today. So yes, the building might look different, but God stays the same. You know that today, all across the globe, Christians are gathering in different buildings for worship. And they look different. They look very different. Some Christians are gathered in living rooms and in homes they're worshiping God. Some Christians are gathered in storefronts and converted warehouses that used to be Walgreens and now they're churches. Some churches like us are gathered in a building that was built specifically for the purpose of the church gathering. Some churches are in what are called underground churches. They can't all come at the same time. They've got to come in small groups because if they all come at the same time, the government's going to see that and haul them off to prison. Some churches are gathered in open cornfields today and open wheat fields today and others are gathered under open air pavilions with thatched roofs and all the different buildings and all the different structures may look different, but the presence of God is the same. 
God is working among his people. And as soon as we start to compare what ministry looked like in that day or in a former day and what ministry looks like today, we're going to miss that it's the same God who is at work. So we've got to confront unhealthy comparison. Comparison is a losing strategy. He asks this question in verse 3, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing? The word nothing in the Hebrew means non-existent. As if it doesn't even exist. These two temples don't even compare. And it's a rebuke. It's a correction. There's a vision adjustment here because they're comparing and missing the mark. Ministry changes, but God's presence does not. There are churches that have been splintered and divided and even dissolved because of generational differences within the church. If I could speak candidly to our church, to City Point Church here this morning, we are a multi-generational church And can I just say loud and clear that that is a gift from God. And may it always be true that we are a multi-generational church, that there there are seasoned older Christians and there are brand new young baby Christians and everything in between. That is a gift from God and I believe that is the way that God intended his gospel community to function. And so if I could speak just for a moment to the older seasoned Christians in the room this morning. What I want to say to you this morning is thank you. Thank you for your legacy of faithfulness. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you have built for the kingdom of God. And thank you for how you have paved the way and prepared the way. But if I could also offer an admonition. Be careful that you don't compare ministry from yesterday to ministry today and say that it's not the same thing. The reality is our buildings look a little different, don't they? We have a drum set instead of an organ. We have a round table instead of a pulpit. Preachers are dressed in everyday clothes instead of suits and ties. We have a band instead of a choir. Things look different, but the presence of God has stayed the same. God is working. God is moving. If I could speak to the younger generation this morning, the younger Christians in the room, I want to say thank you to you as well. And I want to say thank you to you because you are believing God to move in your generation. You believe that God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And that he has a work for you to do. He has a kingdom for you to advance. He has a gospel for you to preach. And so thank you for believing that God is still at work today. But if I could also offer to you an admonition. Don't write off the days gone by and miss the lessons that were learned. And miss the legacy and the road that was paved for you by those who've gone before you. See, the reality is in our church, we need both. We need the older generation of Christians who will recall and remember the faithfulness of God in days gone by because the same God who worked yesterday wants to work today. But we also need the younger generation who is believing God that there is still a work to be done. And the younger generation oftentimes, oftentimes has, has the bandwidth and has the energy to do those things. We need both within the congregation of God. And there is this really cool hidden nugget in our paragraph this morning. And it's in verse 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. There's a time stamp here. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. You say, John, what, what is God teaching us in that verse? What is the significance of that timestamp? 
Well, on the Jewish calendar, that was the end of a holy day. They would have just finished celebrating a holy day. And it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths. And that Feast of Booths was one that was established in the wilderness when God led them out of Egypt, proving his faithfulness, and he establishes this memorial so that they would not forget So understand what had just happened. They had just come off of this holiday, this holy day, this memorial of God's faithfulness in days gone by. And now there's this correction to some of the older folks who were living in that day and forgetting God's presence today. So what's happening is both are happening in the congregation. Yes, we need to go back and we need to remember God's faithfulness just as they did with this holiday that they were celebrating. But also we need to look forward that, and, and remember that God's presence is still working in our midst today. It's the same God. Generation to generation, ministry is going to change. But the presence of God stays the same. But also in your life personally, season to season, ministry changes. You are not in the same church today that you were 10 years ago. You are not doing the same ministry today that you were doing 10 years ago. Maybe you're doing more of it. Maybe you're doing less of it. Your family dynamic today is different than it was 10 years ago. Maybe 10 years ago you didn't have any kids. Now you've got kids and that's part of your ministry. Or maybe 10 years ago you had a house full of kids and that was your ministry then, but now they're all grown and they're gone and they're out of the house. So your ministry has changed, but listen, your God has not So don't compare what God is doing now in your life and look back and say, boy, I just wish everything were like it was back then. No, friend, God is still the same. God still wants to work today. God still wants to speak to you today. God still wants to move in your life today. So yes, ministry has changed and things have changed, but God stays the same. Don't let comparison blur your vision for God's kingdom work. To have clear vision, I must confront unhealthy comparison. Number two, to have clear vision, I must renew relational focus. Renew relational focus. Look at verses four and five. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This must have felt like a fresh inhale of oxygen to weary lungs. They had been discouraged. They had been disillusioned. They were comparing this temple with that temple, with ministry today, with ministry in days gone by, and they were, they were, they were disillusioned in many respects. But now there is this wind of encouragement, this breath of encouragement When he says, I'm with you, my spirit remains in your midst. God is saying, my presence will strengthen your hand and it will settle your heart. Be strong, be strong, be strong three times. Then he says, work. Then he says, don't be afraid. But couched right in the middle of all of that, he tells us how that's going to happen. He says, my presence is with you. I am with you and my spirit remains in your midst. In other words, he's not calling them first to a work. He's calling them first to himself. 
So when you start to feel weary and tired and disillusioned and your vision feels a little blurry and you're not sure what God is doing, come back to relationship. Renew the relationship with God. This is an adjustment that has had, that's been made before in the people of God. David encouraged Solomon in the same way. He said, be strong and courageous and do it for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. God would say to Joshua in Joshua 1.9, Have not I commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a story in the Gospels in Matthew 14. Jesus is walking on the water. Just kind of like an average everyday night going out for a stroll on the water. You know, if you're Jesus, you can do that. The disciples are in the boat and they see this this figure out on the water and they don't know what it is or who it is and they get afraid and Jesus, Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And then Peter gets this bright idea. He's like, hey, if that's really you, Jesus, let me come walk on the water to you. And Jesus is like, all right, come on. Hop out of the boat. And Peter does what no other human being has ever done who was not also God like Jesus. He gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water and he's fixated on Jesus. He's focused on Jesus And he's walking on the water to Jesus. But then something happens. He shifts his focus. Instead of focusing on Jesus, he now starts looking at the wind and the waves and the circumstances and the sky. And he hears the thunder and everything going on around him. And he loses his relational focus. And all of a sudden, what happens? He starts to go down. How many times have we started to Go down. Not because Jesus has left us, but because we've lost our, our, our focus on him. And so if you feel like in this season, in this moment, you're going down, so to speak, come back to the relationship. Get your eyes fixed back on Christ. God is a covenant God. We're going to study that a little bit more next week in the next paragraph. But that word covenant is a relational term. Because God is a covenant God, he says in verse 5, according to the covenant. Because God is a covenant God, it means he's a relational God. He's a God who desires to be with his people. So relationship comes first. Everything else comes next. Relationship first. God is not first calling you to obedience. He is first calling you to himself. See what he does there? In verse 4, actually it's in verse 5, he says, nope, it's in the end of verse 4, sorry. He says, work, for I am with you. He doesn't say work so that I will be with you. He says, work for I, because I am with you. It's his relationship that gives the courage and the strength to the hands to work. So first he's calling us to himself, and then he's calling us to obedience. And when you get obedience before relationship, you are working for a God that you don't know. You are serving as a slave and not as a son or a daughter. You are fearing the consequences of disobedience rather than enjoying the fellowship of obedience. If you get obedience before relationship. And so this entire book of Haggai, this entire small prophetic book is a call back to the temple building, back to building the relationship and emphasizing the relationship and the center point of God's presence among the people of God. Relationship first, everything else comes next. So let me call you this morning, if you've grown weary, 
if you've grown discouraged, if you've grown despondent in what is going on in your life, if you feel like you have that spiritually blurry vision this morning, fix your eyes on Jesus. Come back to the relationship. Renew your focus on Christ. We move and we work in the direction that we are facing. Think about your body. Think about the that the way that God has created our bodies. Our feet are pointed this direction, our hands work this direction, and our eyes and our face are looking this direction. It all kind of works together, doesn't it? Can you imagine if we were like created the other way? Like our feet are pointing that way and our, our hands are positioned this way, but we're looking this way. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do very much, would we? It would be really awkward. To work that way and yet some of us are trying to live our lives spiritually that way we're working and we're moving and we're trying to do all these things for God but we're not looking we're not we're visually looking the other way and so it's a call back to focusing and fixing your eyes on Jesus let your let your let your eyes be fixed on Christ and then let your hands and your feet follow you'll never do God's kingdom work until you are first abiding in God's constant presence Everything's going to be blurry and everything's going to be confusing when you don't fix your eyes on Jesus. So to have clear vision, we confront unhealthy comparison. Don't compare what's happening now in your life to what was happening 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. We have clear vision when we renew our relational focus. God says, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. And then number three, to have clear vision, I must anticipate future hope. I must anticipate future hope. This book is going somewhere. Don't, don't just read a book that's, that's settled down into the end of your Old Testament and think that it was just for a context that has nothing to do with us today. He's going to lift their eyes to a day that would, that would come one day, to a temple that would come one day, to a future hope that was not yet. Look at verse 6. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens. That terminology, that earthquake terminology speaks of supernatural intervention. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Time and time and time again, he says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, to remind us who it is that is making this declaration. This is not first and foremost Haggai. This is God through his prophet to his people. We anticipate the future hope. You know what Haggai's saying? The best is yet to come. You ain't seen nothing yet. Like you think Solomon's temple was glorious and amazing? You think Solomon's temple was, was, was something to behold? You just wait and see because there is a temple that is coming that is not yet. And the glory of that temple is going to outshine the glory that you remember from Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, it's estimated, cost $300 million by today's money. And the temple only took up a space of 2,700 square feet. Imagine taking a home by today's value of 2,700 square feet. We're talking about 
400 times the cost of the average 2,700 square foot home today to build Solomon's temple. That's a lot of gold, folks. That's a lot of expense. We're not talking about this mansion that's sprawling. We're talking about just a 2,700 square foot box that cost $300 million to build. And yet the glory of the temple that is to come that will, out, will outshine that temple of Solomon's. The temple of God represents the presence of God among his people. And so as Haggai looks forward, yes, some of this will be, would be fulfilled in Haggai's day. But ultimately there was a temple to come. You see, the presence of God would ultimately dwell in this temple that they were building, the second temple. Herod would come along later and he would adorn it and he would build it out and, 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 and make it even more beautiful. That's the temple that we find in the Gospels when Jesus says that this temple, Herod's temple, would be destroyed in three days. But then Jesus says, the temple of my body will be destroyed, but in three days it will be raised up again. Now today, we as the church are the temple of God. As living stones, Peter says, being built up, the Spirit of God within us, the presence of God within us, but there is still a temple to come. John, in his vision in Revelation 21, speaks of the temple that will one day come. By the way, that temple is still future for us, even as it was for Haggai. And so in John's vision, there's much of an overlap between John's vision and what we just read in Haggai's declaration from God in Revelation 21, 22. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk in. Take note of that phrase. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Because the temple that is to come is not just a temple for the Jewish people. But it's a temple for all nations from every tribe and every tongue. Who have put faith in Jesus Christ. We will all be there. As the bride of Christ, radiating with the glory of God. So here in Haggai, the people of God envision this with me. They're standing in the rubble of Solomon's temple. The foundation has been laid. They've committed themselves to this work. There's a group of them that are older and they're, they're comparing and they're, they're discouraged because of what they see and it doesn't look like what it used to look like. And Haggai's there saying, hey, lift up your eyes from this. And see a temple that will one day come. And in that temple, all the nations are going to bring their treasures. Because all the nations will be represented. And in that temple, there will be a glory that will outshine the glory that you have ever seen or ever known in Solomon's temple or in the second temple. It's going to be unlike anything you've ever experienced in your day. And then he says this in verse 9. And in this place, I will give peace. The Hebrew word peace there is the word shalom. It's a beautiful word. It's a rich word. It has so much more meaning to it than our English word peace. Our English word peace is like when the kids are getting along at home, right? When, when they're not throwing too many toys. Like that's peace to us. But peace, shalom, means wholeness, completeness. It's actually a salvation term. Because in Isaiah 9, 6, foreshadowing and telling of Jesus who would one day come, he was called the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace. 
And in Romans 5, Paul says that we can have peace with God, not through our own work and our own effort, but through the finished work of Jesus. And so if you're here today sitting in this room and you've been striving and you've been trying and you've been putting forth all of your effort to try to find peace and gain peace and earn peace, listen, friend, you cannot have peace apart from a relationship with the Prince of Peace. As Haggai lifts their eyes to see that temple, he says that temple will be one where there is peace, completeness, and wholeness, shalom. So today, we live with anticipation for that final day. He says in in verse 6, yet once more in a little while. That phrase just, just expresses urgency. It expresses anticipation. Yet once more, in a little while. It's vacation season. Our family's going to be going in a couple of weeks. We've been getting ready for it. We've been thinking about it. My kids made a calendar with the number of days. They're counting down the days. They're crossing them off in anticipation. The vacation's coming. We're starting to plan. We're starting to think, what are we going to do when we get there? We're starting to think, like, when are we going to leave? What time are we going to leave? What time are we going to arrive? What do we need to bring? All of that anticipation, in my opinion is just as much a part of the vacation. Like there, there's, there's that excitement, there's that expectation, like, hey, we're about to pack up the car, we're about to go on a road trip, we're about to go somewhere. I wonder how many of us are living with no expectation and no anticipation of that temple that will someday be, of that place that will someday be where God himself will be the temple. How many of us are living our lives with no expectation and no anticipation? Because when you understand that that day is coming, it changes how you live. That day is coming. The day is coming when God's kingdom purpose will finally and fully be known on this earth. That day is coming when God's presence will be as real as it was back in the first garden in Genesis. Now in the second garden in Revelation. That day is coming when every trial and every trouble will be a mere memory of the past. And that day is coming when we will see with perfect vision the risen Lord and King in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And so Jesus' final words in the book of Revelation are a reminder to us today when he said, Behold, I am coming soon. Are you living with the anticipation of that day? Are you living Marking off the calendar, counting down the days, so to speak? Are you living with this expectation? If your vision has been blurry, if you've been a little disillusioned or a little discouraged or a little confused, lift your eyes and remember that the day is coming that Haggai promised, that Jesus promised, that John promised in Revelation that there would come a day and that day is still on the horizon. And when Jesus comes, As Haggai says in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Is your vision blurry? Lift your eyes. Sometimes we can be looking at things so close to our face that we miss what's coming. So kingdom first Christians have a clear vision of God's kingdom priority. How's your vision this morning? Your spiritual vision. Does it, does it appear to be a little cloudy? Do you, do you feel a little discouraged, a little disillusioned? Do you, do you feel like you aren't seeing things? You're not sure what God is doing in your life? These are the three adjustments that we find in Haggai chapter 2. 
confront unhealthy comparison. Maybe you've been looking at what God is doing now and it doesn't look like what he's done in days gone by and there's this comparison game going on. You've got to confront that. It's not about what it looks like. It's about the presence of God in your life. You must renew the relational focus. It's about Jesus first in your life. And then we must anticipate that future hope. I grew up as a kid singing a song. It was an old gospel song. I'm going to try to sing it for you this morning. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. If you know it, sing it. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. That day's coming. Believe it. Believe it. Don't get discouraged. Don't get disheartened. Don't get dis- confused. Lift your eyes, for the King is coming. We want to learn to live this morning. So I've got three questions that I hope will help make application from this text. Number one, what is your source of peace? What anchors you? What stabilizes you? What settles you? What is your source of peace? Do you go to people? Do you go to career? Do you go to money? Do you go to stuff? Or do you set your sights on Jesus? If you do not yet have a personal relationship with God, understand this, that you can never have peace in this life until you have first been anchored to Christ who is the Prince of Peace. And so if you are striving and if you are trying and if you are working, Stop the striving and come to Jesus and experience the shalom, the completeness, and the wholeness that only he can give. What's your source of peace? Number two, where does your vision need adjustment? Maybe you've been comparing. Maybe you've lost your relational focus. You've been doing a lot of stuff, but you've not been sitting at the feet of Christ. Or maybe you've just been focused on the rubble and you need to lift your eyes to the day that is coming. Where does that adjustment need to be made? And then thirdly, how does anticipating God's kingdom tomorrow change how you live today? We don't just hunker down until the end. We don't just look forward to that day and not allow it to change how we live today. My life, your life should be different. We live intentionally on mission for Christ. 
He's called us to go to the world around us and to take the message of hope and the message of peace through Jesus to the world that needs to hear it. So we live differently. We don't go to the world and stir up strife. We go to the world and make peace. We go to the world and take the message of the gospel to those who need to hear. We are kingdom first Christians, prioritizing first what God prioritizes most. And so to do that, we've got to have the right vision. And if there needs to be an adjustment this morning, let the Spirit of God make the adjustment in your life that needs to be made. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the moments that we've had around your word today. Thank you for the time that we've had in song. Thank you for the time that we've had with your people. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that has not yet come to you by faith, they've not yet put faith in Jesus alone, I pray that today, even now, that they would do that and allow you to be their peace and allow you to settle their life. For those that are followers of Christ, I pray that we would not allow our vision to become blurry by losing sight of what you're doing, by, by comparing and by walking away from the relationship and by getting so focused on the here and now that we miss the day that is coming. So God, do what you want to do. Work in our church. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.